You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and future for the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individual's employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. Hello, listeners. With this episode, we bring you a broadcast of C-19's first book celebration, which took place on Zoom in February of this year. The first book celebration was hosted by Crystal Donker, an assistant professor of English at SUNY New Paltz, and featured the voices and perspectives of 11 scholars whose first books on 19th century history, literature, and culture were published between 2020 and 2021. The event captures the excitement and intellectual curiosity of our community and introduces a new generation of scholars. We hope you enjoy. Good afternoon or evening, depending on what side of the world you are on. Thank you so much for attending today's virtual first book celebration. Today's event honors recent first book authors whose books were released in the years 2020 and 2021 and whose subjects touch on the 19th century. During the first half of today's celebration, each author will have about two to three minutes to discuss what they wish they'd known about the book writing and publishing process. Specifically, they'll start out speaking to something um, they wish someone had told them at an earlier stage in the process after introducing themselves. Following this discussion, you all will have an opportunity for Q&A with our presenters. Okay, so the way this is gonna work is I am going to announce um, our first presenter. Please introduce yourself and as I said, Share one piece of advice, something you wish someone had told you at an earlier stage in the process. And we are going to begin with Ashley Barnes. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. I'm, I'm audible. I'm, I'm okay. Okay, cool. So I'm Ashley Barnes. Um, and I'm, I will get to exactly the prompt Crystal uh, mentioned um, but I wanted to kind of talk about the process for me um, when I started this project, and I just wanted to talk about love stories um, when it when it was a dissertation, and in particular, I wanted to pursue this suspicion that the sentimental love story um, was not so different in its structure from the kind of unspoken intimacies of Henry James's *The Golden Bowl*. Um, And in fact, Eva and Tom getting intimate with each other over the Bible was a species of the same kind of mutual performativity that turns people on in the late James. Um, And I was interested at that point in narrative ethics as a method of approach. That is the conceit that we read best when we read a book as a virtual other that we can get intimate with. And as much as that seemed like a naive humanist vision. Uh, The same idea was there in post-structuralist accounts of reading as being held hostage by a novel that refused to let you in. Um, But the longer that I sat with it, the less I was convinced by the model of otherness that narrative ethics projected. Uh, It was too dehistoricized. And I was realizing that to understand the connections between Stowe and James, I needed to understand changes in the culture of reading and changes in the ideals of intimacy 
um, that had occurred across that span of time. And there were two key elements that kind of um, helped push this along. One was going to the archives. In my case, it was to um, Winter Tour Library and finding these collage um, houses, these kind of scrapbook albums like houses that are made like houses and having to figure out, making myself figure out how to talk about Henry James in relationship to those. And a second element in this process um, was realizing that um, these books interpretations and their, their kind of professional critical uptake and their translation into the very reader text love story that narrative ethics imagined um, had been shaped by the rise of a liberal Protestant um, hermeneutic. So the initial book idea kind of became enfolded in this conversion tale, right? My slow realization that the otherness of a novel is not perceptible without research into its moment of emergence into the world. Um, so in other words, this book is kind of became a record of how I became a professing historicist. Um, and in the end, and, and this is what I wish I had known when I started, although I probably had to find it out for myself, um, I had to write a second book to historicize the idea of the first book. And that is all. Thanks. Thank you so much for sharing your work with us, Ashley. Uh, the next presenter will be Gordon Fraser. Thank you. Um, and thanks, um, Zion and Blevin and, and, and Crystal, obviously, for, for organizing this um, event. And thanks all of you for coming out. Um, I just wanna take a moment to tell you briefly about Star Territory, uh, printing the universe in 19th century America. So Star Territory begins from the premise that agents of the United States have been trying to colonize space since um, 1789. Through the print production of almanacs, maps, star charts, and scientific treatises, um, the project of measuring and mapping the cosmos has enabled the expansion of US territory and the domination of indigenous enslaved and migrant peoples. And I think the history of that project matters now, especially because we're on the verge of a new neo-colonialist space age, um, especially since 2019 with the creation of the US Space Force. But even before that, the US government has talked um, about commercial and military expansion into space in ways that recall 18th and 19th century empire. And so in star territory, I suggest that US efforts to exploit the cosmos have a deep history and that confronting our present position depends on knowing that history. But the question I've had to ask myself in writing star territory is basically this, are there any alternatives to this instrumental relation to the cosmos? The US state has long pursued these narrow efforts to map and exploit the universe, but have people within the United States um, developed other ways of thinking about our relation to space? Um, and the answer is yes. Uh, there were numerous people who dissented from this instrumentalized cosmos in the 19th century. And it's to these dissenters from the Cherokee poet Sole Owo to Walt Whitman, to the black publisher John Russworm, to Hawaiian queen Lily Okalani. Um, it's to these dissenters that I turn for insight. 
And these dissenters from the instrumentalism of the United States asked the kinds of questions, I think, that we don't often expect to find in the archives of the 19th century. Um, what is our ethical obligation to potential life on other worlds? Uh, what might it mean to colonize spaces such as the moon, which have for millennia been treated as sacred by human beings? Um, and what might thinking about the universe as a site of potential life tell us about how we treat our fellow human beings, animals, and the ecology of the earth itself? Now, I'm supposed to close on a bit of practical advice for junior scholars currently working on a book. So here goes, um, do not take your institution's offer of setting up a cloud service to back up your files. Pay if you must for your own cloud service. I pay $1.99 a month for Google, it's great. Um, and when you switch jobs or get a new fellowship or get locked out of your email, you still have all those archival photos that you don't have when you're moving around the country and around the world because you're an itinerant academic desperately trying to complete your first book and get a permanent job. So that's my advice. Um, and thank you all. Thank you for that, Gordon. I'm taking that note myself. <laughs> Our next presenter is Melissa Niadek. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you to everyone who made this happen and to everyone for being here. Um, I'm still amazed at how kind of excited I get in this now two years into this, but just to see people on the computer screen. Um, so um, my book here is my audiovisual aid, um, Oceans at Home, um, grew out of my longstanding interest in thinking across the binary of land and sea, continent and oceans. Um, and that took various forms. Somewhere along the way in the early stages of thinking about this project, I began to take seriously um, the lack of attention to women authors in US oceanic studies. Um, that wasn't where I started, um, but it was something that I couldn't let go of the more I kind of sat with um, the questions I was asking. And so the book developed into one that centers women writers as they drew on um, writings emerging from oceanic spaces like the Pacific. So these are writers who did not necessarily themselves travel, but were who were consuming the kind of um, cultural output surrounding the um, oceanic um, world in, in the 19th century. Um, and I show how these writers used these, um, these stories about spaces like the Pacific to negotiate histories of settler colonialism and imperialism in US continental space. So I hope that the book contributes to the evolving fields of oceanic and archipelagic literary studies by proposing that um, concepts of home and domesticity that have been so central to thinking about um, women in the 19th century US are shaped by these narratives of oceanic space and circulation that have more often been associated with male authors, with whale chases, with militarization. Um, my little piece of advice or just kind of like reflection on the process um, is very practical, I think, in the spirit of the advice we just received. Um, and I was thinking about um, as I was kind of going through the, the production process, how I kept thinking how much attention we pay to early stages, right? To approaching editors, to pitching your book, all for very good reasons. But we don't often spend a lot of time talking about like the tail end of the book process, what happens 
after you submit the manuscript and you kind of like leave everything on the playing field and have this moment of like, oh, great. But there's so much work remaining to be done that is real intellectual work, right? And as I was going through that, and like many of us, um, I was doing that labor um, alongside copy editors and indexers in the middle of a global pandemic in various stages of isolation, which made it harder. But um, I kind of wished that someone had reminded me to save some energy for the important intellectual work of sitting with individual words when your copy editor is like, I don't understand this, or thinking about the kind of ethics and politics embedded in, in creating an index, um, that that is part of the intellectual work of a book. And sometimes I feel like we don't talk about that. Thank you for those insights, Melissa, and for your presentation. Uh, our next presenter is Reed Goshberg. Hi everyone, um, thank you so much for being here and thank you so much to the organizers for putting together this event. Um, I'm so happy to be here and to get to, to hear about these wonderful projects. This is my book, Useful Objects. Um, and you know, this book, in this book, I'm really thinking about the development of 19th century museums through the eyes of writers and artists and visitors. Um, so I've been really interested in this project and thinking about literature alongside the rise of institutions during the 19th century and how collections of objects Objects were, were mediating the relationship between literature and science and, and what counted as knowledge during this period. So this was a moment when many museums were looking to codify or define like what counted as useful um, or what had value, but we can see through this process how um, they were really generating these much larger conversations about the limits of those definitions, um, about more imaginative or expansive visions, um, and also about alternative possibilities. Um, so I see this period as a really fascinating moment of development and transition in terms of how cultural institutions were being founded in the United States. Um, it's a moment when there's a lot of discussion about what to collect, how to organize objects together, but also who counts as a public, who gets to make these decisions about what goes into these collections, um, and how are our writers and visitors negotiating or pushing back on a lot of these ideas. Um, and I saw a lot of resonances between this period and a lot of the kinds of conversations that we have today at various institutions, you know, what ideas have value, who participates in that conversation, who gets to have expertise. Um, and so I would say these, these kinds of questions that I was thinking about within the book also maybe shape my slightly less, uh, maybe less practical advice that I would offer as part of the, the book process. But I think one thing that I found, you know, throughout the, the final revision process, throughout the, the process of putting together the introduction is that I was really thinking in, in different ways about, you know, who my imagined audience for this was going to be. Like, who is the reader? You know, how do I imagine this project, um, you know, playing into how we might teach literature with collections, how we might think about collections themselves differently? Um, and I guess I emphasize that, you know, to echo Melissa's comment about the, the process of doing these revisions, you know, in, in the isolation of, of this pandemic, you know, I think that often I found early on in the process that, you know, people would sort of talk in general terms about like, oh, you know, you're, you're going to think differently about your audience when you move from a dissertation to a book. But I found that thinking about, you know, colleagues across the institution, across fields, but also about students as potential readers was, was really motivating for me um, as I was, you know, imagining how to put these ideas together and how to think about um, the work that I was doing in the project. So I, I would just offer that as, as a piece of advice as you're, as you're thinking about um, the work that you're doing. Thank you. 
Thank you, Reed. Uh, thank you for those insights. Our next presenter is going to be Thomas Koenigs. All right, well, thank you to um, the organizers and thank you for, uh, for you all uh, for being here to hear about uh, these really cool book projects. Uh, my book is Founded in Fiction, The Uses of Fiction in the Early United States. Um, and in the most general terms, it's really a history of the contests over the kind of uses and potential abuses of fiction from roughly like the 1780s and 90s through the 1850s. Um, and in these shifting debates over fiction from this period, both kind of writers and critics were just completely preoccupied with the fictionality of fiction, its status as a kind of made up story or non-factual story. Um, and I think modern readers are so comfortable with the idea of fiction, the kind of conceptual category of fiction that we often take it for granted. And this is the reason that fictionality is simultaneously one of like the most obvious and yet also most easily overlooked aspects of the novel genre. Um, and, and my argument is that the exact opposite was true um, in the early United States. Um, one of the central claims in my book is that the prevailing suspicion of fiction um, and specifically the prevailing suspicion that fiction could teach you anything about the real world actually made early American writers especially attuned to the kind of speculative and conjectural knowledge that fiction could create. And the story of fictionality in the United States uh, is really one not of isolated authors kind of grappling with literary theories so much as one of kind of individuals and social movements trying to harness different modes and modalities of fiction for persuasion, for reform, um, for different social and political projects. Um, so in an attempt to recover the kind of array of different theories, forms, and uses of fictionality that kind of early American writers were developing as they grappled with these different um, social and political problems, I really tried to approach fictionality as a set of historically variable structures of supposition rather than a kind of stable genre-defining characteristic. And the book really emphasizes um, the kind of multiplicity of different fictionalities you find in the early United States. And one of the things I was really trying to do is reframe a kind of rise of the novel narrative as a kind of story about a wide array of competing novelistic and extra novelistic um, versions of fictionality. And in doing so, I really wanted to um, offer a kind of partial history of how these different fictionalities structured the way Americans kind of thought and argued about issues ranging from Republican politics to gendered authority to the struggle over slavery. Um, so that's the book. As far as my advice, um, this is, um, I think one thing I wish I had known was um, we joke so much about kind of the reviewer to experience but I would really like encourage people who are going through this to try to be open and not defensive about critical feedback they receive. And this was something that I personally found challenging. Uh, you've spent so long kind of wrapped up in these arguments and so long with these arguments that um, some of the, it took, it was hard for me to at first see that some of the very best advice I received from my readers um, at first I was like, they've misunderstood something about the project. They're not getting something about it. And in fact, it was exactly the opposite. So what I would really encourage you to do is spend a while processing and really taking seriously that critical feedback, because my view of it really changed over time. Um, and the more time I, sent, um, I spent with it, the more grateful I was for it and the more insightful I found it to be. Um, so again, yeah, thank you so much for listening to me. Thank you for your contribution, Thomas. Um, our next speaker is going to be Hannah Murray. 
Hi everyone, uh, thank you for coming. Thank you for organizing this. Uh, I'll talk very briefly about what's in my book. Uh, this is the book, it's Liminal Whiteness in Early US Fiction, a lovely portrait of Robert Montgomery Bird on the front. Uh, so this book examines white male authors or characters who feel they're treated in the same way as non-white non-citizens in the 19th century. So they feel excluded, marginalized, disenfranchised, subjugated, objectified, dehumanized. Um, these men co-opt the language and signs of persecution leveled against black and indigenous people um, through doing things like playing Indian, talking about wage slavery, uh, blackface minstrelsy, the white slave narrative, and other kind of scenes that mirror racial oppression. To amplify the feeling of being on the periphery of white communities and fears of white precarity in the first half of the 19th century. So liminal whiteness manifests in fiction as a kind of inexplicable, forceful and haunting presence that I argue disrupts communities, disturbs self-knowledge and challenges prescriptions of racial belonging in the early US. Um, and throughout the book, I argue that reading liminal whiteness in early US fiction enables us to examine this sustained and still prevalent racialized cultural ideology of American citizenship. So what I'm talking about aren't really new narratives and the victimhood language of contemporary white supremacy is a continuum, not an aberration that comes from these narratives at the beginning of the United States. Uh, and I go on to say that this resurgence and prominence of this language is why I think critical whiteness studies, which is the theory I'm working with, is of urgent importance to 19th century American studies today in our research and teaching. So a couple of points about like process and some advice. Um, I really had to learn to be much more confident with my premise um, to the point where the opening line of my book is, this is a book about dead white men. So I eventually kind of found that confidence to kind of own what I was doing. Um, and that came from finishing the thesis a month after Trump was elected. Uh, I'd already been thinking with a critical whiteness studies lens, but I became much more focused on what these texts can contribute to critical whiteness studies, namely thinking about white anxiety and the destruction of whiteness. Um, and the second point about kind of practical things I'd say is, at some point, you really need to know what you want to achieve with this book. Um, is this a book that needs to come out immediately because you need to get a job or you're just tired of this project and it just needs to come out so you can move on? Um, and I think it was Reed said before, is this a book that is speaking to people who've only read these texts? Uh, so they are kind of on your level, their peers, or is this a book that's going to speak to students I work in the UK, I teach people who don't read this literature, have not come across it before. I was trying to think about what this book could give them. And to just say that there are different presses and series that will cater to each approach. So it's really important to research what press is going to help you with what you want to achieve. Thanks. Thank you, Hannah, for your research and for those questions. Our next presenter is going to be Zain Yao. Uh, thank you, Crystal. Uh, so here's my book. Oh dear, which you can see because my book is, you know, superimposed on top of my book. It's all books all the way down, uh, but it's also shiny. Um, 
So I wanted to share that my book comes out of a number of different sources of alienation and perhaps we can even say disaffection. One feeling the sense of alienation and disaffection from the perennial problem in Americanist studies, but the 19th century American studies that we have between the question of sympathy and sentimentalism and the extent to which, you know, there's a cultural work that can be done versus its complicity. And it feels to me that we just keep on going around and around and around in terms of like, well, just feel better next time is the way to perhaps think about it in relation to Stowe. And this other form of disaffection and alienation I felt just from affect studies, the sort of insistence on the universality of affect, the predispersive quality, the way it's just some, um, all these porousnesses and attachments, but then I couldn't help but think obstinately, well, what about detachments? What about the importance of boundaries? And finally, for me, it came from taking seriously these feelings of alienation and disaffection myself as what um, queer and feminist of color critics call theory in the flesh and taking seriously my experiences, the experiences of those I care about, and also then reading uh, across the grain of the archive for these forms of unfeeling dissent um, and the refusal to respond to um, affectability um, as I rework uh, Denise Ferrer da Silva's concept of affectability to think about affect. Um, and so really was motivated by all these frustrations, but I, my advice about the book pro process was, I was not really sure what was really bothering me until after I finished writing the dissertation. And it really had to take a lot of distance um, as well as closeness and intimacy with my subject in order to get to that point of realizing also had to do with the radical decentering of my sense of what I'd learned through the dissertation and what I was learning by approaching things from the different fields of critical race and ethnic studies as um, incommensurable but deeply intertwined discourses that are often um, at odds with one another. Um, and I guess another piece of advice I have is just uh, about get, making space for your own fragmentation. Um, I found it a really difficult period of my life to be writing in and a number of people have talked about, you know, traveling internationally, new jobs, precarity, I had health problems, loss, um, and allowing myself to, to fall apart and an open, yeah, an openness to the sort of dismantling of the self, much like the dismantling of the project, because I had this despair after graduation that I'd finished my thesis, but it didn't even, it did not feel like a draft towards a book. It was very far from that. But then a friend said to me, oh, but what if you thought about it, not as a draft towards the book, but as notes towards the book? And that was really freeing for me. Um, and I guess like I picked up the pieces from my dissertation and I picked up myself literally from off the floor and ta-da. And so hopefully that's useful to hear. That is so useful to hear. Thank you so much, Sign, for that perspective. Our last and final speaker will be Alyssa Zellinger. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Alyssa, and thank you um, again to the organizers for the opportunity to, jo to join. And oh my gosh, everybody's book sounds so smart and so cool. Um, so here's mine. This is Lyrical Strains, Liberalism and Women's Poetry in 19th Century America. And I, I love my cover because so often with books about women or women writers, you get like their hand or their back or their shoulder. And here we have like, like Osgood's googly eyes just staring right at you. So I really enjoy my cover. Um, real quickly, what my book is about, um, I argue that 19th century concepts of the liberal self, so a self that's self-enclosed, self-reliant, self-possessed, uh, match 19th century poetic figurations of a lyrical speaker who is likewise self-enclosed, self-reliant, self-possessed. 
So particularly in uh, the 19th century United States, liberalism and lyric sought self-definition by practicing techniques of exclusion. So liberalism was a political philosophy whose supposed universals, um, an autonomous self, a self freely bound to others, um, were actually limited only to white men and were in fact created by omitting women, the enslaved and native peoples. Um, and the com conventions of poetic reception uh, kind of redoubled the sense that liberal selfhood defined boundaries by refusing raced and gendered others. So it's precisely what I call the poetics of the excluded um, that offers insights into the processes that form the modern lyrical and liberal selves. Um, so I examined four subjects, four poets, four women poets, um, Elizabeth, everybody has like four names, Elizabeth Oak Smith, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, Edna St. Vincent Millay, and E. Pauline Johnson. Um, and I argue that their poems engage lyrical practices to contest the very assumptions about selfhood responsible for denying them the political and social freedoms enjoyed by full liberal subjects. And as you can tell from the title, I dive right into like current debates on lyrical, lyric theory, lyric studies. Um, I argue that recent scholarship's insistence that lyric is a editorial construction of the, of the 20th century actually overlooks the historical existence of lyric in the 19th century. Um, so I consider, I, I try to remedy such tendencies by regarding lyric as a social practice that was responding um, to the promises of an emerging liberal order in the 19th century. Um, briefly about the process, um, I tried to expand my dissertation um, into a book, even though I attended talks that said not to do that. Um, so I started to write my first chapter and realized it was three chapters. Um, if I had any advice to give, um, it would kind of be to like touch your intro as you go along, because I found that writing the introduction really helped um, the ideas, like the main ideas of the project cohere. Um, so I would write a chapter, write a little bit of the intro. Uh, it was good to come back and touch it. Um, kind of like Zine was saying, like, it's okay to fall apart um, when I, I have no archival research because I had twins while I was writing the book. So there wasn't any like leaving the house for me. So um, thanks so much to Texas Tech University and it's, a, it's an excellent um, digital archives that really helped this book come together. Um, and like last piece of advice is that make it as perfect as you can make it. But um, if you find you're just changing synonyms around, um, you can stop because you will, you will have readers who will help you with that. So thanks for the, thanks for the opportunity guys. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for that practical advice. And many thanks to all of the presenters today. Um, obviously, you've all done amazing work, and I'm sure everyone is excited, hopefully, in the chat, getting your book right now. Um, but you've also kept really well on time. Uh, this will allow our audience to ask some questions. Um, so a note for the audience, feel free to, you know, just kind of raise your hand and, and unmute and ask your question or put your question in chat and we'll try to keep our eyes um, on that. So the floor is open for anyone who has a question for either a particular speaker or all of our speakers and whoever would like to touch that question, please feel free um, to do so. Thank you, um, Shaibal. Yeah, I can start that kind of, I got a cool, Question, uh, you can say two questions in one question. One is that the, all the books, I see that there's a kind of interconnection, the kind of that how home is, you know, imagined in comparison to the outside, you know, that oceanic, uh, that something outside. So it's a kind of that trend in the uh, 19th century American studies now. It's a kind of one question. And the second question is to 
uh, Gordon Fraser. My question is that, that in your in your book that we immerse in the theoretical framework, how much you see that in your book you already mentioned Shuan shows that uh, geographical space uh, and how home is home is imagined in that way, but how Benedict Anderson's you know imagined community and print capitalism also worked in this kind of process. If I'm clear, thank you. Well, I'll, I'll start. So it's good to see you, Scheibel. Um, uh, so I'll start uh, with that um, with that second question, but I actually, I'm interested in the first one. So maybe that'll, maybe I can transition. Um, so you were asking about the kind of method in Star Territory, um, which, is, which very much started as a kind of print culture project. So I was thinking about Benedict Anderson and I was thinking about other people who did print culture work, like how our nations formed with, um, um, through print nationalism, reforms of print nationalism. Um, what I realized over time though, as the book developed was that that was a conversation that had happened a long time ago. Um, you know, Anderson's conversation had happened a long time ago. And that in my own field, as I went to conferences and I ran into say Reed at, uh, at we, were, we were talking about our books at Dartmouth at the Futures Institute very early in the process. Um, and so when I kind of encountered people who were working on books at the same time, these other conversations were happening. Um, and so they were conversations about the history of science and how race was institutionalized through, um, through scientific institutions. Um, and um, the kind of speaks to Hannah's work as well, thinking about, thinking about how whiteness is formed. And so what's interesting to me is um, that across this process, without realizing it, I was writing a book that was of my moment. And when I look across at the books here, I think that you're right. I think they do speak to each other in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that only comes out of being part of the conference scene and reading other people's articles as they're coming out and, and being engaged with other people. So that's my answer. Well, as people drum up some questions, um, I have one. Um, can any of you talk about the most exciting types of evidence? Oh, we have a question. <laughs> okay, I'll hold mine and let Britt ask hers first. No, Crystal, ask your question. Okay, okay. You know, questions for everyone, I imagine. Um, can you talk about the most exciting kind of evidence you, you might have come across during your process? Uh, thank you, Hannah. Yes. Um, I don't know if exciting is the right word. I found some really depressing evidence. I mean, this ended up being a book about white supremacy. Um, but as I was primarily working with canonical writers, they had digitized archives, transcribed, printed archives, apart from this guy, Robert Montgomery Bird. Um, so that was my one big archive visit was to go to Penn and read his archive. Um, and I think I was genuinely taken aback by the segregationist writing in his personal letters, a man who was in theory in favor of abolition, but in a lot of his private writing, and then this definitely comes through in the, the literature, is his um, just complete denial of black selfhood, of citizenship. Um, so it was a really depressing, experience to read this material. Um, and it was, you know, there was anti-Semitism in there as well and general misogyny. Um, but it, 
it actually helped me to articulate and work out this position of these writers that might be in theory of abolition and speak generally about rights and citizenship, but yet have a very specific segregationist politics in reality, which also came through in their writing. Thank you for sharing that, Hannah. And since we have so many interested parties, um, Zine and then Gordon and then Melissa, you can all speak to this question of evidence in that order. Thank you, Crystal. That's such a good question. Um, I guess as a little bit of a counterpoint to, to Hannah's and I think a very uh, and a necessary compliment um, is something that was a bit more joyful. The fourth chapter of my book on Black women doctors is the one that uh, didn't exist in any form in my dissertation, but I was troubled about like not having um, a chapter that discussed the work of, of Black women and that just felt like something that was very necessary, especially thinking about Black women in STEM because I have quite a few friends um, who are currently Black women in STEM. And there was a serendipitous moment where um, I'd gotten to know Nazira Wright, who wrote the beautiful book, A Black Girlhood in the 19th Century. And she heard an early version of my paper at a previous C19. And then she sent me a message telling me, oh, there's this um, object at um, the Library Company of Philadelphia. It is actually this little thing advertising um, the book of medical discourses by one of the black woman doctors that has an endorsement from none other than Frances Ellen Watkins Harper herself. And that was just such an exciting thing because it hadn't been cataloged yet properly. She had just come across herself. And there's just the, there's something also about the praxis of, of scholarly generosity. And because of that, I was able to put together a successful application for a short-term Mellon Fellowship for a month to go and do all the archival research that I think allowed that chapter to, to have real depth. And so I'm really grateful for not just the object, but the excitement of being in dialogue with fantastic scholars like Nazira. Um, my, my example is much more quotidian and, and very brief. Um, 1789, Bartholomew Burgess, he's an acquaintance of John Adams. He publishes in honor of the new inauguration of the president and vice president an account of comets. And he warns that America could be destroyed by space aliens who live on comets. I wasn't expecting that. I love that. My example is not quite as exciting, I'm afraid. Um, but I too love this question and um, Zion used the word serendipity. And I think my example um, is one of kind of serendipity and also one of just kind of like taking time in archives, encountering things that you don't know what to do. I feel like this is the origin story of so many projects, you know, like I encountered this thing that befuddled me and it wouldn't let me go. And I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And um, for me, that was a, um, a chat book at the American Antiquarian Society. I was there to do the Chavik like visual culture week long seminar and an entirely different topic, but I had some downtime and I just started, you know, pulling things, searching kind of keywords, um, including New Zealand, because that was something I was interested in and came across this chat book, um, this little children's story that ended up really um, years later, I realized that it's what the project kind of crystallized around, but it took me a long, long time um, to get from point A to, I won't even call it point B, it was more like point 
Z, right, through lots of other twists and turns. Um, but in, in retrospect, I can kind of identify this one kind of material object um, that just wouldn't let me go. I kept pulling up the PDF on my computer and like looking at it again and again um, for like a few years after I first encountered it. So um, yeah, I'll stop there and turn it over to Reed. Um, well, thank you. I just wanted to echo your point about how, in some ways, uh, discoveries that you make early on in the process, like, can be something that you come back to in, in sort of unexpected ways. Um, you know, in my own case, you know, a source that I was working with kind of early on um, in grad school was um, you know, this uh, appeal uh, from Charles Wilson Peel of his Phil of the Philadelphia Museum um, to, you know, the, the learned gentleman of Philadelphia. This is 1792. Um, but in this, you know, he's talking about like the process of putting together his museum. He's bragging about his skills at taxidermy because he's trying to get them to give him money to, you know, buy more frames, buy more glass cases. But then there's this really weird moment where he starts talking about how, you know, he's so good at taxidermy that he could actually taxidermy the founding fathers and keep them on display. Um, and, you know, he talks about how Ben Franklin would be, you know, very, very supportive of this idea. Um, and it's this really weird moment for obvious reasons. Um, but this is something that, that kind of fell out of the dissertation when I was writing it um, for, you know, chronological reasons. But when I came back to the book and I was kind of expanding the chronology and kind of looking back to the, the late 18th century, it was something that I brought in. And um, and in, within that context, you know, it, it raised like these larger questions um, of thinking about like stability, like political instability, like uncertainty, like why would somebody want to, you know, keep certain people, certain ideas in sight at this moment. Um, and I mentioned this just because I think that my reading of this particular piece also evolved over time, um, you know, as the project was developing in different ways, um, you know, my sense of, you know, the different kinds of, of layers that I wanted to add to this source, um, you know, definitely shifted to like, especially as I was putting it in conversation with, with another um, collection. Um, and so I think that the kind of similar to, to what other people are noticing um, you know, it's, there's, yeah, there are these kind of moments of serendipity, but also these moments where you, you come back to, to things and, and add on to them as well. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for uh, those thoughtful responses to that question. Britt, you're next. Thanks, Crystal. Um, this is a great event. Thank you to the, um, the committee on events for organizing it and all of you for being willing to share. Um, and also just congratulations for writing these books during a pandemic. Um, I, I, I'm gonna hold off from asking uh, like specifically what that was like, but I you should feel free to share. But I guess I'm more specifically wondering if like the pand if you found that the pandemic or just life over the past few years shaped your ideas in particular ways. Um, I've noticed that like, as I've returned to some things that I wrote before the pandemic or some things I've been working on that, I just think that some some ideas for me have shifted in relation to the, the kind of context in which we're living. So I'm just curious if the if the pandemic shaped your thinking or project in in certain ways that may have surprised you. Uh, so I'm happy to speak up to this first, um, I guess, and I guess it for me it just underlined all the underlying themes of my book in terms of thinking about intimacy, but also 
isolation and distance and you know the fear of, of, of emotional expressionlessness because everyone's wearing these Asiatic masks. Um, but also on the most basic level that the, the beautiful cover art on my book is by a very dear friend of mine, Lucia Lorenzi, um, who's a Canadianist who works in black studies and trauma theory. And it's artwork that she did and she was posting on Instagram during the first lockdown. Um, and she was doing this entire series in Vancouver while I was in London. And she'd been part of this group of friends during my postdoc and to feel so dissonant and alienated, but yet to see feel so close. As soon as I saw that piece of artwork, which she entitled Intimacy, I knew that it sort of captured the contradictions that I was seeking to explore my work. Um, yeah, and if anything, I just feel even more obstinate and contrarian about the very need for certain types of social distancing and forms of strategic alienation, uh, despite the demand to take off the mask and bear it all and, you know, share all the germs again. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, we have two raised hands with questions, but I'm going to turn us really quickly to the chat. Please keep your hands raised. Um, one to elevate uh, Damien Schlarb's book, uh, Melville's Wisdom. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And to turn to Thomas Howard's question, um, Thomas is thank, uh, grateful for the practical advice and would love to hear more from anyone about the experience of finding and choosing a university press editor. Um, was your book part of a series and, and what that is like specifically for a first book? Thank you. Alyssa. Um, okay, I think this is advice that's pretty general, but it really worked out for me. And it was look at your bookshelves and see where the books you're using or your favorite books, where they're who, where they were published. Um, and so I kind of looked at my bookshelves and had like a list of like maybe nine deep publishers that I organized into like you know dream first tier publishers, second second tier. Not that they were bad, but like second tier group, third tier. Um, and I got lucky that UNC, who was in my first tier, you know, picked it up. Um, because I do, I find that like, you know, half my bibliography is like UNC press books. So that that was really good guiding advice for me. And I, I just highly recommend UNC. Um, I mean, I have no other experience, but like they were just the kindest um, press to work with and so patient and were willing to explain every step of the way. There was no pretense like, oh, you should know better. You should know this. Um, they very much understood that, that, yes, this was my first radio. Um, and so that that was just a really lucky lucky move for me. But yeah, uh, take a look at your bookshelves. Thank you. Hannah? Um, so I have a book in a series and it's the first book with that series. So it's partially down to just good timing. There was a call for book proposals and that's why I responded to. So there's no harm in responding to um, things you see advertised, people who are looking for books. Um, having a first book with a series um, has been a really positive experience. The series editors, so Chris Hanlon, Sarah Robbins, and Andy Taylor were really supportive. They went through um, the sample that I wanted to send off to readers and made suggestions before it went off um, and for the proposal as well. Um, and it was extra helpful being with a British press and having one of the editors, um, Andy is at Edinburgh himself, had just a better idea of British academia and what I needed to achieve and essentially that I needed a book out pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, the experience being really positive for me and to just see what opportunities are out there and there's nothing wrong with, you know, approaching people and uh, when they ask for these proposals and suggestions. 
Thank you so much for sharing that, Hannah. Now we'll turn to Damien with your question. Yes, hello everybody. Thanks for sharing your experiences. Um, I was wondering in how far people felt like their first book kind of guided them towards maybe a new project or what could be eventually the second book and how they see the two things connect or even grow out of each other. Sorry, I'm just over here laughing because I find that I'm trying to write a second book and it's the same exact argument as the first, just with different names. So I'm really, it, it hasn't helped me at all. I'm very much struggling to like come up with something shiny and new and not just repeat the same thing. Um, Thomas and then Zine. Yeah, I, I actually had a, a kind of similar experience to that. I actually thought I was writing an article on um, Frederick Douglass's The Heroic Slave, which I really thought was gonna be the first part of a new project. And then thanks to really helpful feedback from readers, I realized, oh, wait, this is actually part of the first book and ended up including it in that. So when I really thought I was starting um, something new, it actually turned out to be a kind of final thoughts um, from, from the last project. But I, I, I mean, I, as I've started the incredibly early stages of conceiving a second project, I, I do think of like it inevitably, I, I don't think it inevitably has to have a relation, but at least for me, the questions I'm asking, the methods I'm using are different, but they're very much related and come out. I can draw a clear line, at least to me, in my thinking between the two books, very much so. Um, yeah, so I think that my the second book project, which is also very, very early early days, um, really is, is about sex work, generally in the 19th century, but is also so continuing this interest I have in like theory in the flesh and thinking about um, of affect and embodiment and sort of reading against the grain of texts that are usually seen as pithy sentimental or sensationalist and seeing it as a potential for this type of reworking and rethinking that could um, hopefully help to complement the work that's being done right now by um, sex work activists themselves, I think in really important and interesting ways and in that sex workers are some of the, the activists really at the forefront of like thinking about uh, borders and labor and, um, and capital. Uh, and so I think it's, it's exciting, it's daunting. It has helped to maybe to think, help me orient thinking about the forms of embodied, but also like effective labor. Um, and yeah, it's just gonna be messy, but hopefully exciting and good. Thank you, Ashley and Hannah. Um, I, I will just say, again, my second book seems like it's, it's the, you know, very direct sequel to the first. I'm, you know, hopeful that it, it will become more, you know, it, it will become its own uh, special and unique thing. But um, yeah, I, it, I said, you know, about the, the, the first book, I ended up kind of writing another book to explain my dissertation to myself. Um, and I, I think having to write that explanation set me on a real interest in, in thinking about questions of secularism and reading, um, secularism and in in our kind, kinds of concepts of, of intimacy and interpretation. And um, what may kind of give a special shape to this new project, which is yeah, very larval at the moment is just a, a, one of these kind of archival accidental discoveries, which was reading about um, Houdini um, exposing this um, Boston medium as a fake and then being followed up by this Harvard grad student 
English instructor who also disproved her as fake, but in a slightly different way. And the, the differences between the sort of um, magician disproving the medium and the literary, you know, the grad student disproving the medium, um, that became really fascinating to me. And that I, you know, again, that's, it feels like I'm kind of rewriting the same book, but with different people, as Alyssa said, but, um, but maybe that's okay. Gonna, I'm gonna think that's okay for now anyway. Thanks for the question. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm actually, I'm gonna ask you, Hannah and Melissa, if you would indulge me. We have two outstanding questions and about five minutes left. So I just wanna give people a chance to uh, cure a broader perspective around a different question. Elizabeth, can you ask your question, please? Hi, can everyone hear me? Okay, great. Thank you so much again to all the speakers. Um, I'm just heartily impressed. And I just wanted to ask um, in terms of as an interdisciplinary scholar, um, in terms of how you write and, and sort of what you recommended in terms of like thinking about your audience. And I think I'm trying to think about sort of because I'm at the interface of history of medicine and then childhood studies, which in and of itself is a very interdisciplinary field. And so I think positioning myself and trying to speak to the proper audience, I was wondering sort of what your your advice would be on that, um, yeah, regarding that. And I think that's connected to the question in the chat as well on interdisciplinarity. So thank you. Um, if I can just jump in really quickly and, 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 and start off, I just have a kind of a quick answer. Um, so for my book, um, I was, in terms of disciplinary affiliations, I was all over the place. I was in Black studies, I was in print culture, I was in the history of nationalism, I was in Indigenous studies, and it was, it was spiraling out of control at the level of um, history of science. Um, at the level of my dissertation, it was spiraling out of control. And so for me, what anchored me ultimately was finding the methodological core of the study and saying that ultimately what I was doing was pretty straightforward. I was tracing print artifacts across the 19th century as they talked about the universe and figuring out how they talked about the universe and how they shaped ideas about the universe. And so the anchor for me was this one methodological approach. Um, and then my question was, how does that methodology speak to other fields? Um, and so I'm, I'm grounded really in print culture um, and then I ask, how does that speak to the history of science? How does that speak to indigenous studies? How does that speak to black studies? Um, and it took me a long time to make that move. But once I made it, I could felt like I could speak more confidently about what I could say and what I couldn't say in those other fields, what I could know and what I couldn't know. Thank you so much, Gordon. Uh, Reed, can you speak to that as well? Well, I was actually just wondering if I should lower my hand in part because I think Gordon said it so perfectly. I mean, I think that I was actually thinking a lot of the, the same kinds of things about this question. And, you know, I would just echo his comment about method and, and about this question of what, um, yeah, about what, you know, your particular approach like brings to these two fields, right? Like not only importing ideas from another field, but how does, you know, our training, um, the kinds of sources, the kinds of evidence you're bringing into the conversation, like how does that offer um, a different perspective as well. And I think that that, you know, I would agree that I felt similarly that it kind of came a little bit later in the process than maybe I would have liked. But I think that having, you know, having that moment of reflection was really, really useful for me in terms of thinking about the, the larger stakes and contributions of the project too. 
Uh, thank you for that. We are just coming perfectly to time. I want to thank every author who shared about uh, your book today. You have accomplished an amazing feat and you've been so generous in, in giving advice to others about how they might approach this process. So thank you. I also want to wish everyone well in the audience who is heading toward a first book themselves. I hope you feel inspired. Um, and I don't want to be presumptuous, but if you have a question, I imagine that any of today's presenters would be happy to hear from you and talk to you more about the process if, if you wanted to know that. And I see a lot of nodding, so I think I'm right. <laughs> um, and, and so it was wonderful to meet you all. And thank you to the audience for your questions and your insights and for sharing your work. Um, and I wish you all well. Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19podcast or get in touch with us at c19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.